Hey, welcome to Every Night's a School Night. The original. The original. Yeah, I'm going to start out this little intro here. I'm going to talk about anti-Americanism a little bit. And this show has always been a very American show. It's always been pro-American. Or at the very least, a celebration of the aspects of America and American identity that I like. Which isn't to say there aren't aspects I don't like. It's not to say there aren't things about America currently, historically, hell, even in the future. I'm see I got this vision. I'm looking at future America. And there's things I there's things I like about future America and there's things I don't like. So I can just accept the idea that there's always gonna be things about a freaking country that you like and don't like, especially as a member. And that's how we should look at it. Don't look at it as uh, I'm a citizen. Be like, I'm a member. I have membership. That's all that is. That's all a, a, when you have a passport or you have a social security card, a, a license, a driver's license, all that is, it's a membership card. I'm part of the, the club called America. And if you're part of a club and, uh, you know, and you can't unjoin it, you can't leave it, I mean, it's like the mafia in that way, where once you become a member, once your finger gets pricked, you can't undo it. You can't leave. It's the same thing for being part of a country. Yeah, you can change citizenship. But like I always point out with that, there's some people where they're like, oh, I just hate America. I just hate America. I'm going to move. Oh, my God, they elected him. I'm going to move. You know, there's people like that. And the funny part about that, the irony of that, is that if you don't want to be an American anymore, and so you want to leave America and be an expat, an expat, an expatric, and if you want to do that, what's funny about that is if you move somewhere else in the world, you're going to be even more of an American. Like, if you move to some quaint European village, you know, and you're the American living there Literally every single person in the town is going to give you the nickname, the American. They're all going to, you know, if they're referring to you, they're like, oh, well, go down by the American's house and take a left. You know, everybody in that town, doesn't matter where you go in the world, if you're an American, you move someplace, especially if it's a place with relatively few Americans, the rest of the time you're there, you're going to be known as the American. So if you want to escape your American identity... Going to another country isn't really the answer because everybody's going to think of you as even more American. You're going to contrast even more with everybody. So that's the funny irony of people who want to escape their American identities. They just become even more American. And the things that make them more American stand out. You know, the things that make them American stand out more when they're around non-Americans. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? But it's just one of those funny things I've seen. But, you know, this show, it's very much a celebration of what it means to me to be an American. What America has produced. The sort of sensations that are, you know, maybe not unique to America, but that America did some sort of service to. And we all see that in music. We all see that in movies. There are certain industries 
creative industries, you know, it's it's incredible to think about what was accomplished under the banner of America. And because of that, you know, I can't be one of these people who just sees all bad. Oh, America, they do this. America does this and they do that, and so I got to hate it all. Which seems to be kind of where people go with it. And they're very vocal. And nobody's ever going to listen to somebody who's like, I hate this thing that I want to change. I absolutely hate this thing. So listen to the changes that I want to make. It's like if you hate something, nobody's going to listen to the to the revisions that you want to give because they're just like, oh, well, this is just this is just ruined from the start. I wouldn't trust somebody like somebody who's like somebody comes to your house and they're just like, I hate everything here. I hate your house. I hate your furniture. But listen to me. You know, listen to me. I'm going to tell you where to put your furniture. I'm going to tell you what you should have in your house. I'm going to tell you what color to paint your house. I'm going to tell you what kind of rules. I'm going to I'm going to create a chore chart. I'm going to create the chore chart that your family's going to follow. But just so you know, I hate your house. I hate your household. I hate your household. Um so it's like are you going to listen to somebody who's coming from that perspective on a larger level? No, you're not. And so that's always funny to me is people who they come from this position uh you know they were just like come on. You know you, you can't come from that point of view. Lead by example. Focus on the things that you like and strengthen those. Reinforce those things and then try to add other things to those to those I guess I would call them points of strength. Build around the strengths that you already see rather than trying to tear everything down. You know, it's just it's just pointless. I mean, but so much of it is just that same thing I always talk about on here, especially lately, which is defining yourself based on things you don't like or that you are opposed to. It's resist not evil yet again, where it's you're defining yourself by the fact that you're not evil but what the hell are you? Okay, you're not evil. You're fighting evil, but you're in this continual relationship. You're now orbiting evil, but what do you represent? You know, we know what you're apparently not, or what you say you're not. You're not evil. You know, in the same way that, you know, you say you're not, you know, into this, you know, American nationalism. You say you're maybe even anti-American. I mean, there are people who just are are very explicit about it, where it's not just criticizing America, but it's, you know, burning the flag, upside down flag, whatever else they want to do. But it's you're defining yourself based on what you're not. So what are you? What do you have to offer? What you know, how are you going to fill those gaps? You know, where where is your you know, if you're going to destroy an empty space, here we go, just riffing on all the, the recent themes. If you're going to destroy an empty space, what are you going to create in its stead? And I don't really hear a lot of great ideas coming from that uh, place. And I, I think back to when I had that mindset, you know, because it's not that I've never thought that way. I mean, when I was 15, 16 years old, I remember being a sophomore in high school and not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance at a pep rally. And my teacher confronted me, just this little woman. It wasn't like she was some all-American lady herself, but she was just like you know, you need to stand. And I was like, I don't have to, whatever I said, whatever I said in response to my teacher telling me I had to stand was, is probably so embarrassing in retrospect, but maybe not. 
you know, maybe I just said, I'm not going to stand. I don't have to. And it's such a catch-22 for me looking back because the ritual of everybody standing and facing a flag in the corner of a gymnasium is so strange. That ritual is so... And, and then, too, the monotony, especially when people do the Pledge of Allegiance and everybody has this monotonous voice that they uh, and they repeat the same words in unison. It's a very strange cult-like experience but we're all members, you know, we're all, mem- we're all, we all have membership cards to the American experience. But yeah, it's this catch 22 where on one hand, I still to this day, even though I, I believe in embracing my America, you know, my, not my America, I mean, that sounds so ridiculous, but just embracing the things that I celebrate about America, highlighting the things I celebrate whatever those are and that's and some of the things that you know are worth thinking about some of the things that i celebrate aren't even the best aspects of america you know cuz to me you know part of just the whole experience is appreciating even the some of the downsides some of the limitations some of the things that i may not completely like about the country also i don't know sometimes those things can create something too sometimes those things can make for something and I mean, we see that too. I mean, we see where music itself is developed, you know, where sometimes people who are marginalized, people who are oppressed in America have created long lasting, impactful music and art. So we see where even the, the downsides and negative aspects of the American experience can produce things that far surpass, surpass, <laughs> far surpass those act the negative things that prompted them you know so you can't necessarily be like well you know we got to get rid of all the bad things not a bad idea but it's just sometimes those bad things actually do create good so you have to be aware of that as well but with the standing for the pledge of allegiance i just you know it's a catch 22 for me now cuz at the time i was just like oh i'm not going to stand i feel rebellious i felt anti-american and uh, the teacher, you know, she what she said to me, she said, oh, if you just want to sit there and be weird, if you want to sit there and be weird, go ahead. And uh, I still, I remember her words, you know, if you want to sit there and be weird, because that's what I was doing. You know, I was sitting there and being weird by not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. And, uh, but now, you know, I, I would stand now. You know, I think, because I mean, just knowing how strange the ritual is, I would do it just for that sake, just to be like, wow, I'm going to participate in this because it's, I mean, I've, I went to a Buddhist chanting event on uh, New Year's Eve, this last New Year's Eve, and, uh, you know, in some ways that's not entirely different. You know, all chanting the same thing. There's something to that sort of ritual, and not saying that the intentions are the same. Declaring <laughs> Declaring your allegiance to your country is different than a much more, you know, open uh, spiritual chanting session. But but still, just the experience of a bunch of people saying the same thing is interesting, and, and doing it with people. Sometimes that's a, a worthy exercise, even if it's not your thing. But, you know, there is this dilemma for me where it's like I don't want to stand and, and say the Pledge of Allegiance out loud with everybody, but I also, at this point, I wouldn't want to protest it either. So what do you do? Sit halfway down? crouch 
Be like, I'm on my feet, but I'm not completely standing. I'm just going to crouch for the Pledge of Allegiance. That's how you know you're being weird. That's when your teacher has, you know, full right to be like, well, if you just want to crouch and be weird, go ahead. But yeah, I'm certainly not anti-American, and I'm glad that phase was short-lived. I'm glad that phase where I just thought, oh, America sucks, even though I've had this great life. And so many people, have, even people who have started without great lives, have created great lives for themselves. So it's, you know, you can't, you know, I can't throw everything away. You know, I can't throw everything that America is away just because there are some things that are not good and haven't been good and whatever it is. But anyway, you know, it's been on my mind because, you know, people see this current situation, this lockdown, and, and from all points of view, there's a bunch of people right now who really see, you know, whether they think the government's oppressing us by telling us to stay inside or... People will always find ways to criticize a government or a country. But you can't escape it. You know, you really can't escape your national identity. You know, if you are born and raised in America, you will always be an American. And the further you try to stray from that, the more apparent it will be. The more apparent it will be to everybody around you and to you yourself. Le American. All your new neighbors will call you that. You didn't want to. <laughs> you didn't want to live in America anymore. Now all your neighbors are calling you the American, uh, and and probably in their own language, being like, "He's weird. He crouches. He just he just crouches in his hut all day." But anyway, yeah. So it's the show. It, it very much is a celebration, and I and I always I just want to say like, what do you stand for? You know, I we know what you don't stand for. Not you, but anybody, anybody who is standing against something. We know that, but what are you standing for? And a lot of people do stand for something. A lot of people do have ideas of what to do, opposed to what not to do. People do have that, but there are a lot who really don't have any ideas. There's a lot of people who just want to stand against something or just look at the negative aspects of an experience. It's something that kind of, this is going to be a long intro, but Something that made me think about this is I'm reading a book and it was talking about Danish slavery and it got into, you know, the West Indies, uh, you know, New Guinea, uh, some, I can't even remember where, but it, it was just these slave colonies and one of them was ruled by the Danes who were very aggressive in their day. You know, the Danish, the Danish kingdom was very aggressive, both in Scandinavia and beyond. And it's interesting, because Denmark tends to be more overlooked these days than Sweden and Norway, maybe even Finland. So it's just kind of funny to me that the Danes were kind of at the top of the heap for so long, and then that faded, and they're just, it's kind of, oh yeah, Denmark. Oh yeah, Denmark exists. Uh, but it was just reading about that. It's funny to me that because American slavery is such a big focus, and for me, it's such a perspective game. Where yeah, there's no doubt there were what ninety years after America declared its independence before slavery ended, and you can argue that you know some forms of slavery continued and maybe even continue to exist in the post Civil War America, but. You know, and you can hear that and be like, oh, slavery still existed for, you know, almost 90 years after America became its own country. That's 90 years too long. 
And I agree with that. You know, any amount of time that slavery exists at any point in history is, is too much and too long, of course. But when I hear that, you know, when I look at that, I think, especially thinking about, it doesn't matter how far we go back. We go back to these ancient civilizations, and there's always rampant slavery. It's this system that we can't escape. We go back in history, and I'm not saying every single civilization used slavery, but it seems like all of the highly developed ones, it doesn't matter what part of the world, it just seems that complicated, developed countries universally used slavery. And America, you know, was created as this colony of European countries. And, of course, they utilized the same system, which is slavery. And uh, it's pretty amazing to me, though, that you can say, oh, 90 years was too long for this new country to have slavery. But I look at that and I say, it's pretty damn amazing that in less than 100 years, we got rid of this system that had been in place for thousands of years. And it was cruel. It was inhumane. I don't need to explain to anybody why slavery is bad. But uh, it's just, it's interesting to me that we tend to look at it and be like, well, America has this, you know, long history of slavery. And it's like, well, America actually has a much shorter history of slavery than any other country in the world, any other comparable civilization. So we should give ourselves maybe not credit. You don't want to be like, oh, we had less slavery than others. And it's like, well, you didn't have no slavery. And it's like, very true shouldn't pat ourselves on the back for only having 90 years as opposed to like hundreds, thousands of years. But it is one of those things where it is a perspective thing where I look at that and I'm just like, it is pretty incredible that we abolished this ancient time-honored system of cruelty only 90 years after we became our own country. That's pretty impressive. And it's just strange to me that America gets this, and I don't know how global this is, but it certainly seems this way within America, that we tend to associate slavery with America. And that's because it is so recent, for sure. And uh, But it is strange to me that it all gets dumped on America, where it's like, you know, we were using a system that had been in place everywhere else. And we used that here, and I don't know whether I don't know what the difference differences were between the American slave system versus you know various European countries, but the point is is that there was enough slavery going on for there to be nuance. You know what I mean? Like there was enough slavery going on in the world throughout history that we can actually compare how different countries handled slavery, which just that speaks for itself. So while I would never deny or try to downplay America's history and American slavery, it just, it does sort of, it does seem like a skewed perspective. It does seem like a distortion to associate the entire concept of slavery with America and to not acknowledge that, you know, America, a relatively short time into its life, did abolish this thing that had been a time-honored and common practice throughout the world, throughout recorded history. Is that, am I justifying it? No, just simply saying that, you know, I don't know that America should, you know, dwell in the shadow of slavery. Doesn't mean we can't acknowledge it, doesn't mean we can't try to correct some of the long-term issues that stemmed from that, that mode of thinking. 
you know, our treatment of black people, of just different things. I'm not saying we shouldn't address those things, but I do think that we need to think in terms of what, what kind of examples can we set now? That's all it comes down to. Because I look at American history and I say, here are the examples I like. Here are the cool things that came out of America. And I'm going to highlight those. I love the music I play on this show, and I see it as uniquely American. You know, there's a lot of uniquely American music, but there's something about that 50s and 60s era that just, it didn't translate elsewhere. Even even though it influenced artists from other countries, you know, you think about doo-wop, you think about that, you think about some of these styles of music, country music, for sure. And to me, this is, it's American it's it's the closest thing we have to some sort of American paganism, something like country music, you know, sincere, real, you know, music from that era, to me is, you know, just there's something uniquely American to it. And so I choose to look at those examples, and I also hope to set examples of what you can do, you know, your, your range of possibilities. And I would say proudly everything I do is American. And I'm not proud of it because it is American, but I'm just proud of the fact that everything that led me here, my entire experience, all the wonderful people I've known growing up, all of the the wonderful experiences I've had happened in America, mostly with Americans. And I'm, am I going to let that be, you know, am, am I going to let that get discolored by the other things that have happened in America by Americans, you know, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to focus on the the positive examples, the constructive examples, because that's all you have. Because when you define yourself in opposition, when you define yourself as an anti-American, and whether you call yourself or not, there is certainly a mode of thinking that is just based around that, where when you see an American flag, your automatic response is to trash it. There's people like that, and that's where my mind was at when I was 15 or 16. You know, think when 9-11 happened, you know, I, I remember thinking I was a sophomore. This is all my sophomore year. My sophomore year of high school was my anti-American year. But anyway, you know, I remember 9-11 and thinking, oh, we probably deserve this. And it's like, who deserved what? Who deserved what? You know, like, who, at what point do you you break down that equation and explain like, oh, well, this, uh, you know, this character, A, in this algebraic equation, A represents this, B represents, you know, it's like, how do you even explain that? How do you even explain what's deserved and what's not? And so now it's like, I would never think that way. I would never think that way about anything, any act of violence and be like, oh, this is because... People, as, as, as members of America, we somehow deserve this. No. No matter what our government did, no matter what our military did, I don't think there's any situation where, you know, something like that is deserved. But there was that, you know, need to rebel. But I, I would just say, if you're defining yourself as anti-American, you better have some substance, too. You better have some positive examples, too. Because if you think everything that has ever been done under the banner of the American flag, including living your daily life, pursuing your interests, the ideas that you've come up with as a product of this American culture, and if you think your ideas are, are completely separate, completely distinct from that, 
Think again. Think again. You know, so have some substance. Have some examples of the America that you believe in and love. And if you don't have any, well, you should do some soul searching. And people shouldn't listen to you. <laughs> anyway, speaking of listening, here we go. A 24-minute intro. And, uh, you know, I listen to... I, I can't even explain it. I, I need to just get into the song. But I'm going to play a song. I'm going to play an Elvis song. Uh, why not? It's, it's hard for me not to talk about examples of what it means to be an American, and one of the most obvious is Elvis, and I feel like on the rare occasions that I do school nights, every night's a school night these days, it's just like, hey, I'll just throw some Elvis in, some Elvis and some Leuven brothers. It's just kind of a go-to. I feel like it clears the air. That's kind of how I feel about artists like Elvis, Dolly Parton, the Leuven brothers, the more well-known names who make their rounds often on this show. It's just kind of like, hey, we just kind of got to. You know, it's kind of like we just got to have a, a statue of Buddha in our house. We just have to have a, you know, Christ on the cross in our house. It's kind of the same thing. We just got to play a little bit of Elvis, you know, semi-regularly. Got to play some Dolly, but in this case, we're going to play Elvis, and we're going to play the song Any Way You Want Me, and then in parentheses, That's How I Will Be. Strong as a mountain, or weak as a willow tree. listen to a song like that and think, oh, any way you want me, that's exactly what I'll be. I oh, see so you got no, you got no backbone. You got no backbone. 
You got no backbone. No backbone. You could hear that and think that, but that's if you think of the song in terms of he's singing to a girl or that it's a it's about romance or love, which it certainly sounds like. But I mean, as someone as someone who plays, excuse me, I got a mint in my mouth. Um, but as someone who plays a lot of love and romance and heartbreak songs on here, but in particular the the love and romance ones, uh, I don't really think of those songs that way. I have before. But I tend to think, like, honestly, this is going to sound ridiculous, but, like, I tend to listen to a song like that and be like, oh, he's talking about God. He's talking about the universe. He's talking about something large, much larger than just one person's affection. And a song like that, especially, where he's saying, you know, re-listen to it. It reminds me a lot of the lyrics to that Jimmy Rogers, the other Jimmy Rogers that I played on this show not that long ago probably was like three months ago, who knows how often I do these, but uh, but that Jimmy Rogers song, Make Me a Miracle, where it's like, make me a cup, make me a chalice, you know, there's that similar idea to this, where it's basically, I can be anything, big or small, so the lyrics remind me a lot of that song, and I, I like the idea of it, even though I don't like the idea of someone losing all their backbone, because everybody's had a friend that, you know, if you do look at that song in romantic terms, everybody's had that friend who, you know, oh, they, they started dating Jenny and now he's different. Mike started dating Jenny and I don't even feel like we should call him Mike anymore. Because he's certainly not the Mike that I knew. You know, but, and we have a tendency to get mad at friends when they change. And then, I mean, even yourself. I mean, if you're on a date and the second you say something that isn't what you believe in order to impress your date, or even if you censor yourself or, or you lie by omission, but it's something that we constantly do, and we do it more often when it comes to romance than anything else, where there's this idea that it's like, I've got to not be myself so that this person will like me. You know, speaking of algebra, that doesn't, that's a hard one to solve. I'm going to not be myself so that this person will like me, me. I'm not. I'm gonna not be me, so they'll like me. You know, but it's it's a game that people get caught up in, just because they want affection, they want validation. But I like thinking of it more on a, a larger level, because you know I'm I'm very into this idea of dismantling our, you know, our thin, brittle shells of identity. It's something that I talk a lot about on here, and so I like that song, that Elvis song, in that sense, where it's very much saying like I'm an amorphous creature. And really, is love something that somehow, like, if you if you give up your identity for love, whether it's of God, whether it's of a girl, or whether it's a girl God, no matter what it is, though, it's like if you give yourself up for that, you know, is it what? Where's the crime? You know, where, where, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it, once you kind of unravel some of these things that you think you know about yourself, you realize you can kind of be anything. And I mean, I think you can look at that song too. <laughs> I didn't expect it to go here, but you, know, you can look at that song too and be like, he could be talking about being an American as well. You know, any way you want me. You know, in the same way that you can decide to be the American that you think other Americans should be. In the same way that you can live by example. Or you can be the thing. You can be something else, and big or small. But 
You know, in the same way that you can be the exact type of American you want to be or that you feel someone else wants you to be, that you feel you are meant to be by some higher power. You know, I think it's the same thing with that song where it's like, you know, any way you want me, any way you want me, America, that's what I'll be. And I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about America as a spiritual entity, which it is. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so I like that song in that sense. And I, I tend to do that. I tend to listen to love and romance songs and think that they're just talking about something larger. You know, because it's hard for me to justify sitting around listening to someone sing about teenage love, although I do love that. It's just one of those things that I feel a little weird doing sometimes because I'm not listening to songs for those reasons. I'm not listening to those songs because they're relatable necessarily, I mean, although they can be. But anyway, I'm going to do another Elvis song. I'm just going to keep that ball rolling here. And this song, it has the word want in it as well. You know, I just played Any Way You Want Me. And this next song is I Want You, I Need You, I Love You. And maybe that's the next step. Maybe these songs go together where Any Way You Want Me, that's how I'll be. And then, you know, you can decide what you want. Once you surrender yourself, you can then decide what you want. Because that's the thing about, you know, when you unravel yourself, when you let yourself be an amorphous entity or you embrace the amorphous entity that underlies your existence. The thing about that is that you then have a choice. You then have a blank slate to work from. If you want to add to it, you can. You don't have to, but you can. And so you can start thinking about your wants. You can start thinking about what you need. And so this song is that. Elvis Presley, I want you, I need you, I love you. And I like this one because he gets into some territory that doesn't really sound like Elvis to me. You know, I mean, one of the defining features of Elvis, what makes Elvis Elvis, is his immediately recognizable voice, that even the best imitators, even the people who have been influenced by him, nobody sounds like him to me. And somebody could probably send me something and be like, this guy sounds like him, you know, but I really just don't think anybody has his voice. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's some moments in this song where it doesn't sound like him to me. It just sounds like any singer from that era, and a good singer, a good singer. But there's some parts where, like, the the pace of the music kind of speeds up, and you can tell that he didn't know entirely what to do with his voice during those moments. And so it ends up not sounding entirely entirely like Elvis. And I appreciate that. It's nice to get a little bit of that. You know, as much as I want him to sound like Elvis, it's nice to hear those moments where he doesn't entirely sound like himself. Hold me close, hold me tight, make me thrill with delight. Let me know where I stand from the start. I want you, I need you, I love you with all my heart. But every time that you're near, all my cares disappear. Darling, you're all that I'm.
Add too, uh, if you're a Danzig fan, I recommend the Elvis tribute album he just released. I wasn't going to check it out. You know, Danzig was a, a pivotal figure in my uh, early years when I was a teenager. I got very into Danzig, very into his different bands. I'm still a big fan to this day, honestly. You know, some things you get into when you're a kid or a teenager and you let go of them. I mean, there's this idea that people get into something, there's this idea that, oh, you're going to listen to the music you listened to as a teenager forever. That's my era, man. This is my era. Well, you kids don't know, you know, when I was a teenager. But I've let go of so many things over the years, you know. It's like there's a lot of music I was into when I was 15 that I didn't stay with me for whatever reason. And in fact, it repels me. There's stuff that I loved when I was 15, 16, all, all my life. There's stuff I loved yesterday that I hate now. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not like it's not like it was just the teenage years, but Danzig's someone who it just he always stayed. Uh, it's not like I listened to Danzig that much, but he always stayed relevant to me in some way. Maybe it was just the impact that Danzig and his music had. I don't know, but I still like him. I still like what he does, even though I don't have a reason to check out new stuff very much or anything like that. But I do recommend his Alvis. I do recommend his Alvis cover album. I do, though. A friend of mine recommended it, and I did listen to it, and he chose some really good songs, unexpected songs. You know, it's not just the most obvious material. There's a couple ones that everybody's going to know, but I feel like he put some consideration and thought into creating a unique Elvis cover album, and of course, his voice, Danzig's voice, has an Elvis influence, as everybody knows. And I have to say, I've always appreciated that about Glenn Danzig, too, that he kept the 50s and early 60s relevant. You know, even though his music has never sounded that way, like Danzig has never done doo-wop music that I know of, he always, he just, he made it known that that was an era that he appreciated. So it's like Danzig and Ronnie James Dio to me. There's some special place for me with them, especially with Dio, because Dio was actually in a couple of really great doo-wop groups that I've played on this show. And so I like that there's some, you know, it would be really annoying to me if there was some super obvious, like, metal doo-wop hybrid, where if somebody tried to do that consciously and force it, and someone probably has, kind of like what you see with, I think it's called Psychobilly, where it's like, horror-themed rockabilly, and to me it's just terrible. It'd be the same thing if somebody tried to do... I know there's a goth doo-wop group, a man and a woman who do gothy doo-wop, and I don't like it. You know, I just... I don't... To me, it doesn't capture any of the actual magic doo-wop has, and it forces this other aesthetic on it that it doesn't need. You know, because doo-wop should just be a bunch of guys in suits 
plain plain suits snapping. You know, you don't need to like turn it into Day of the Dead. You don't need to turn it into uh, you know some like gothy skull show. Duop doesn't need that. But I like that uh, Dio obviously came from that background. He came from a duop. He was a doo-wop performer, and then Danzig. It's just always, without going overboard, he's always made it known that that was a big influence on him. And so I appreciate that, because that's all the connection that metal and doo-wop need. All the connection that it needs is people like Danzig, people like Dio, uh, creating some kind of missing link. Uh, but um, enough about that. I just recommend, ch- check out the Danzig album. It's, you know, it's not going to be Elvis, you know, you're not going to be listening to Elvis. And when I was listening to it, I kept thinking, I want to listen to Elvis after this. And not in the sense that, oh, this sucks so much, it makes me want to hear the real thing. It was actually, this is really cool to hear this, and it just makes me want to listen to the real thing. It's You know, there's a difference there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, and there's some weird breathy stuff. You know, I was talking about how that last song, there are some moments where it doesn't really sound like Elvis to me, and it's kind of the same thing with Danzig's tribute album, where there's some moments where he's doing these kind of, his vocals almost sound atonal, which is a, a word I would never use to describe Danzig's vocals normally. But there's these moments where it's almost atonal, which was interesting. But of course, most of it's not that way. And maybe it's just in my head. I never know if I'm hearing the same things other people are hearing. I never know if I'm seeing the same things other people are seeing. I mean, I know I'm seeing the same object. I know I'm hearing the same basic sound, but it's just the way I filter it. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I I do recommend just checking it out if you're an Elvis fan and a Danzig fan. Because when I heard that cover album, I thought, this sounds like Elvis, or this sounds like Elvis covering Danzig. No, I did have that thought where I was like, this sounds like Danzig covering Elvis, which is exactly what it should be. That's exactly <laughs> what a Danzig Elvis cover album should be. Uh, but anyway, we're going we're gonna to move on here and um, play a song by a guy named Joe Beatty. Joe Beatty. Maybe Beatty? Spelled different than Warren Beatty. B-E-A-T-Y. I think that's a different spelling. So Joe Beatty, Joe Beatty. And the Sunlighters. It sounds like a car. I don't know if that's a car, but it sounds like a car. Is that a Sunlighter? Oh, you're the guy who drives the Sunlighter. You know, it sounds like a car to me, but if it's not a car and it's just it's just a type of person, well then, you know, I welcome that kind of person into my life. Oh, you're a Sunlighter. Oh, this is my friend Jerry. Yo, this is my friend Jerry. He, he's what we call a Sunlighter. He brings the light of the sun with him. Everywhere he goes, he lights up the room because he's a sunlighter. Uh, is that a sunlighter? Is that a lighter that harnesses the power of the sun? But yeah, so we're going to play Joe Beatty, Beatty, and the Sunlighters with I Believe. <laughs> Oh 
Undeniably and obviously haunting, that last song by Richie Alhona called One Desire from 1961. 1961, for whatever reason, is a magical year. 
I, I don't pay that much. I wouldn't even be able to tell you offhand what other songs came out in 1961, but it's one of those things where I notice it. I notice when a song is from 1961. If I look it up, I'll see, oh, 1961, and I go, of course. There's something about that period. I think because it was the middle period of the doo-wop and, and this style of pop music, I think because it was the middle period where a lot of great music came out in the late 1950s, but it was still in its earliest form. Whereas 1961 is where I feel like it kind of, I feel like doo-wop and pop from that era, just that style, that teen pop, I feel like it hit its peak around 1961. I feel like it had a jolt of creativity. The ideas hadn't been completely exhausted yet. You know, as it, by 1964, you know, it was pretty well exhausted and you're not going to find as much good stuff. But 61 seems like a good year. I feel like there's also something to the, you know, when when a decade starts and you're in that first year, as we are right now in 2020, but when you're in that first year of a new decade, I feel like it's sort of this, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a pregnant year. Like you're expecting something of it. When really you just have the backwash of the previous decade to deal with. And I feel like it takes at least a year. I think that's a thing too where... There is a lot of good music from 1960, but I don't find myself noticing it as much. And I think part of that is because it's this new decade and people don't really know what to do with themselves. There's almost this pressure to to live differently or be differently because you're in a new decade now. You're in a new decade. You're in a new decade. You seem you seem like you haven't changed enough for me. But uh you know you're in this new decade and it's like kind of this pregnant year. Where it's just like there's this pressure, like you, it's like you're supposed to give birth to something. You're supposed to give birth to this new version of yourself, and you haven't done it. I want my friends to be fresh for the new decade. Um, but I, I think there is something to that. And if you look at other decades, I feel like it's the same thing. And this isn't exactly a scientific study here, but at the same time, I just have a sense for that. I feel the same way when I look at 1990 opposed to 91, 2000 opposed to 2001. I could do it with every decade, guys. I could do it with every decade where I just feel like the first year, the 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 zero year, I feel like tends to produce less interesting stuff than the years to come. The early part of a decade. That's I think that's what it is. It starts with, you know, say 61, but it's that early part of the decade where I feel like a lot of really good ideas come. Once people have accepted that it's a new decade, but they don't have the pressure of the decade ending, because you can see where people get into that mindset too. I could see just the way people were talking, whether they were creative people, whether they were just people living their lives, people almost set up this weird... It's almost like uh, when people set up New Year's resolutions. You know, when you're getting near the end of a decade, people start thinking, oh, I want to finish this, or they start reflecting on the entire decade, whereas those first few years of a new decade after the first year, which, like I said, is still backwash from the previous decade, and it's true, too, with fashion. You can see where, like, you'll see kids talk about the 80s, or, sorry, they'll talk about the, the 90s. They'll be like, oh, that's so 90s. Kids who were, like, five years old, you know, like me in 1990, uh, will be like, Oh, that's so 90s. But really what they're describing is the backwash of the late 1980s. Like what we consider, like if you look at videos, if you look at music videos, if you look at fashion from, say, 1990, you're not seeing the 90s decade. You're seeing the backwash from the 1980s. And it looks that way. It comes across that way. You know, the 90s didn't even start developing its own identity until I would say by... 
I mean, you see 91, you see things start to happen in 91 for sure, but it wasn't until around, say, 93 that I feel like we really see the 90s start taking shape. And then, of course, by 1996, it's on, you know, it's turning into backwash that will just flow into the year 2000. So you can see where there's just this this small window of time <laughs> within a decade where you can actually really represent something new. And this is my own theory here, but I think that it's if you look through your interests, you'll see this trend. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, death metal. You know, you, you think about look at the look at the years that certain death metal albums came out. You know, you'll you'll see it in the early '90s. You'll see it. But uh, yeah, with that one, Richie Alhona. You know, I, I'm not a saxophone guy. You know, I don't get excited when I hear saxophone. But then I, I realize how good it is. I realize how much it fits this particular kind of music. And I, I kind of feel like when I'm feeling really good in life, when I'm feeling excited, when I'm giddy, I feel like a saxophone sound. You know, I feel like a saxophone would represent me better. Even though I would be like, well, I, I, I'm more of a guitar, I'm, I'm more of a distorted guitar playing minor key notes. You know, as much as I would like to believe I'm that all the time, I think when I'm truly like just flowing through life, I sound like a saxophone. I think my voice sounds like a saxophone. If it, if it could enunciate words. Um, but uh, yeah, Richie Alhona, One Desire, obviously a special song. Joe Beattie and the Sunlighters before that. And what I really liked about that was the guitar tone. What stood out about the Sunlighters is that Sunlighters guitar tone. But yeah, we're going to move on. Uh, this is more of a, this is, you know, barely an every night to school night. There's so much talking, but I'm going to play a couple songs by Ginny Arnell. Her name is Ginny Arnell. And there's two songs. One's from 64 and the other's from 63. And we're going to play them in that order. So we're going to go back in time. We're going to start with, I wish I knew what dress to wear. You know, sometimes we need guidance. Sometimes we need somebody to tell us something. And sometimes that's what to wear. Ginny Arnell I wish I knew what dress to wear. I'm glad to know she had options at the very least, though. Because if, if not, we, we know she has options because if she didn't, she would be saying, I wish I had other dresses I could wear except this one fucking dress that I have to wear. She'd, that, that's, that would be the name of the song if she didn't have multiple dresses. So I'm glad she has multiple dresses. And the next song is the best Ginny Arnell song, and it's called Dumbhead. Not one word. I feel like if people say dumbhead today, they would think it's one word, like butthead, any number of other, dickhead, you know, these other ones. But dumbhead, which itself is a dumb thing to say, a dumbhead. You're a dumbhead. I mean, I don't even need to, it's dumb to even try to tell you that's a dumb thing to say, and it sounds dumb coming out of your mouth. Uh, but I'm secure enough to say it, dumbhead. But the song is called Dumbhead, and it lives up to its name, and not because the song itself is dumb. The song itself is very good. Something can be good and dumb, though. Something can be good and dumb. Uh, but that one's from 63. So we're going to play these two songs by Ginny Arnell. Wondering about dresses and Dumbhead. I wish I knew what dress to wear and just what style to fix my hair I wish I knew what color shoe black silk pumps 
That was Ginny Arnell, and that last one, Dumbhead, had obviously great lyrics. I think I'm going to bang my head against the wall. I'm so stupid, I'm going to make myself dumber. I'm so stupid that the proper response to my poor decisions is to bang my head against the wall and make myself dumber. It's funny with that one, though. My I was talking to my friend Miles a couple months ago, and... He brought up Ginny Arnell, and he claims I introduced him to the Ginny Arnell dumbhead. I have no recollection of it. Not only do I have no recollection introducing to him to it, I thought he introduced me to it. And so, I don't know. I, I stand by the fact that I didn't introduce him to it. But I don't know what to say. There's a similar dispute with us about, uh, there was a joke, God, this is about almost 15 years ago, where... You know, there's that there's that group, the Swans, and even though I have you know this background being into industrial, you know, heavy experimental music and that kind of thing, for whatever reason, I was never a big Swans person. I, I think just the point in time where I got introduced to the Swans wasn't. I almost feel like that ship had sailed or something, and it's not. It takes nothing away from them, and I, I respect what they are. You know, I respect that, but I, I just for whatever reason that wasn't a group that affected me one way or another but they had that album point being they had that album uh public castration is a good idea and i i swear like i remember miles sending me something way back when and it just said public castration is a great idea just a funny little joke like changing good to great public castration it's not just a good idea it's a great idea and it was just so funny to me at the time and I credit him with it, but I, I brought it up a while back, and he was like, you came up with that. And trust me, we're the type of people where we'll, we'll cling to every little thing that we ever came up with, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm the kind of person where, like, if I can take credit for it, maybe I will. If I can take credit for something I came up with, I probably will. So it's, this has nothing to do with being magnanimous or generous in thought. It's like, I didn't come up with it. And it's also not something that's particularly offensive, you know, it's not like something that you don't want to lay claim to because it could ruin your life. He's the one, officer. He's the one who came up with it. He's the one who took that swan's title and changed it to public castration's a great idea. He did it. He's going to jail. You know, the swan's blasphemy laws, those laws that say that you can't make a joke about a swan's album title. Because that's what happens when the swan's fans get into power. That's what they would do. You know that. The people who are just, they love the swans. They like Their swans phase never ended. Those are the people you have to worry about when they get power. Because next thing you know, you can't even joke. You can't even joke about a swans album. But anyway, Ginny Arnell, the same thing. Where I swear that I didn't find that myself. I swear that I didn't. You know, she's a well-known artist. Ginny Arnell was very well-known. You know, and... I just I don't believe that I introduced anybody else to Dumbhead. I believe it was introduced to me. But maybe that's just the the Dumbhead phenomenon. Like a song called Dumbhead makes you dumb. A song called Dumbhead makes it makes you forget everything except for the it makes you forget you even heard the song. I mean apparently. Cuz if I did share that with with Miles way back when, if I did introduce him to Ginny Arnell Dumbhead, you know, my memory got erased. And that's we can thank the song for that, maybe. Let's develop a superstition around Dumbhead. 
and uh, see what happens. Just see what happens when you listen to it. You might not even know what you're listening to right now. You might be listening to every night's a school night right now, and I ha- I'm having to remind you what you're even listening to because Ginny Arnell just wiped your fucking memory. She just wiped your fucking memory. Um, my memory. All my memories. They all they they were for nothing. Now I just got this dumb head. Now I just go around with nothing in my head. Anyway, uh, this you know I'm, I'm have, gonna have to wrap this episode up. I feel like it just got started, and I know there was like a half hour intro. I know all that, but uh, I need to do more of these. I need to do more every night to school nights. I have a lot more music I want to play. Just my broken record, famous last words. Just I, I want to do more of these. Twenty night schools later, forty night schools later, here we are. But, uh, you know, in the same way that I was talking about how playing Elvis, it's almost like placing a holy statue in your house where it's like you're not trying to impress anybody with it necessarily. You're not trying. It's not some weird piece of art you found somewhere that you just wonder about. It's like you just know why you have it. You know why it's there. Everybody knows what it is. You know, you just it's just that's what it is. It's like buying you know, a pair of. uh Decent tennis shoes. I don't know. I don't know. It's like it's like putting a Buddha statue in your house. It's like putting a a cross on your wall. It's like buying a new pair of tennis shoes. But in the same way that Elvis is that way, Leuven Brothers have the same role in this show. And and right now I feel like I'm. I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm using classics as a handrail, and not because I'm going to fall down. But I just feel like I'm kind of using classics right now as a handrail. Personal classics as well as general classics. For whatever reason, that's what's been appealing to me. Not just right now, for a little while, but I feel like especially right now. And in the spirit of celebrating the examples of America that I genuinely love and appreciate, I think it's important to bring those personal classics to the front. And so this one's going to be by the Leuven Brothers. And of course, Mother's Day is coming up. And, you know, every day for the rest of my life is going to be Mother's Day. I think that's the reality of losing a parent is that the rest of your life is going to be, you know, even if you don't think about your mom all day, even if you don't do anything special every day, I mean, you don't have to get Norman Batesy about it. Uh, But every day is going to be Mother's Day to some degree for the rest of my life. So with Mother's Day coming up, it's obviously it's going to get a little bit more of my attention for sure. But at the same time, it's... I no longer have to communicate that to her on this one given day. It's something like Mother's Day has been spread out. And so there's less pressure to, you know, you know, while I do believe her spirit is around, it's not like I have to give her a card or make her a card or do anything like that necessarily, you know. It's, it's just more of a general acknowledgement at this point. Uh, but with Mother's Day coming up, I'm not going to do some Mother's Day episode or anything like that. But this is a Leuven Brothers song that I was introduced to in the last few months. And, you know, I've heard most of their music. I feel like I've heard most of their recordings. But every once in a while, something does sneak by and you hadn't heard it before. And uh, this is one called... Um, just one second here. I want to get the title right. Got to get the title right. It's Leuven Brothers, Mother, I Thank You for the Bible You Gave Me. Obviously, it's, a, it's an entire sentence. Hard to remember a song title when it's a whole sentence, but I appreciate that. I like long song titles. 
I like it when groups feel the need to explain something in the song title itself rather than keeping it vague. Vague. So, Mother, I thank you for the Bible you gave me. I was planning on playing this anyway before I realized it was even going to be Mother's Day, so it just it fits in that way, but it, it also just happened to be the song that I was planning on closing the whatever next episode I did. Uh, it was the song I planned on closing it out with. And, you know, my mom did give me a Bible before she passed. It was quite a, you know, maybe a year before she passed. She gave me this little Bible that her friend gave her in the 70s, and uh, I've been reading it. I, I try to read it every night. And she wasn't a Christian, you know, but this is a Bible she got when she learned that I was interested in, you know, studying the Bible a bit. She gave me her little Bible. It's little, it's blue, it's very nice looking. It's, you know, bound in leather with a little clasp and a, a ribbon that's built in so you can use it as a bookmark. And, you know, she was alive at the time that I, I went through it for the first time. And she had written in the the you know, the the blank pages at the beginning, she had written the dates and circumstances of her brother's death, her mother's death, and then about my parents' marriage, which was on Christmas Eve, 1976, and then my sister's birth and my birth. So it's very interesting that she wrote all that down. She wrote down birthdays and death dates and just... So it's like her brother's death, her mom's death, her marriage to my dad my sister's birth, my birth. So very interesting, especially because this would have been over a span of time, too. You know, she was given this in the 70s, and so she she decided to write my birth down in it in 1985. I find that you can see these things that were pivotal moments in her life, these deaths, her marriage after that, and then the birth of her children. And really significant to me, though, is just some other stuff. She wrote down a few... Not the entire passages, but she wrote down a few a few passages that I guess she wanted to refer to later. She just mentions, you know, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, Revelations 5, and, you know, Philippians, Philippians, I don't, I don't even know how to say that, 4, 8, but, uh, which is, those refer to the Sermon on the Mount, the book with seven seals, and good in all things. And that was just such a fundamental part of her personality, good in all things, but what I really wanted to get to is the, the thing that was the most powerful to me about this Bible was she also wrote on one of the last blank pages at the front, definition of create, and create is underlined, to cause to exist for the first time, to make something from nothing. I find it very interesting she wrote that in her Bible. And again, she wasn't a Christian by any means. She was open to the idea of, of things. She was agnostic to the most open-minded extreme, if you can even call it extreme. But I would say that she was, you know, just very, very open, definitely had a sense for something, and that's obviously rubbed off on me throughout my life as well, but uh, definitely not a Christian, and that makes it that much more significant that she wrote this stuff down in this Bible, including important dates, important relationships, and then this definition of create to cause to exist for the first time, to make something from nothing. So we're going to play the Leuven Brothers, a little tribute to my mom, a tribute to everybody, a tribute to just all that this is, a tribute to America. You know, I, I believe I can paint this brush, I can paint this as broadly as I want to, with as broad of a brush, that's what I meant to say. 
I believe that I can make this a tribute to as much as I want. This is really a tribute to everything that America is to me, the positive examples, the possibilities in being an American, in living in America. And that includes simply being born to the person I was born with in the time and place that I was born. This is a tribute to that. This is a tribute to just existence itself. And my own existence is just my little corner of America where I've noticed some things, learned some things, forgot a lot of things, being a dumbhead and all. But, uh, you know, it's just a tribute to my little corner, but everybody's. It's a tribute to everybody's mothers. I mean, because that's a thought, too. You know, I've had a thought through all, all this where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I can experience the joy of other people's relationship to their mothers without feeling deprived or sad. And with that, you know, you can see where, you know, your own, you can, you can, and you don't have to tell people that. You don't have to tell people, oh, your relationship with your mom reminds me of mine. You don't have to lay that on people, but you can just keep that in your mind. It's, it's a secret weapon you've ha- you have if you've ever dealt with a death. A secret weapon you have is being able to say, you know what? The fact that those people are, are able to act out something that was so important to me and so pivotal in my life, my relationship to my mother, the fact that other people are able to live that out right now, that is gorgeous. That is beautiful. And I'm glad I have things like this Bible. Unexpected things. You know, you never can, you can never guess, like, the things that are going to seem important or become important to you. And having a Bible where my mom wrote the definition of create, where she wrote to make something from nothing, that's quite an artifact to have. That's quite an artifact to be able to take with me. And I thank her for that. You know, I really do. So... This song comes from the heart, you know, Leuven Brothers, Mother, I thank you for the Bible you gave. Mother, I'm leaving, I'm proud to go. Please don't start grieving, I love you so. Here in this pocket, over my heart. Is the Bible you gave me a gift as we part? My country needs me, you know that's true. Pray for me, mother, till this war is through. God will protect me, you must be brave. Mother, I thank you for the Bible you gave. I'm writing this letter to say I love my Bible, I read it each day And when I read it, my blood is drawn near The blessed scriptures, they love to hear Missed all is true much of earthly things What peace and comfort the Holy Word brings Mother, don't worry, I will be safe Mother, I thank you for the Bible you gave 
have a hero now for a son. I had been wounded, left there for dead, but God in His mercy saved me instead. My Bible saved me, it's played its part, it stopped the bullet aimed at my heart. Your blessed present my life has saved. Mother, I thank you for the Bible you This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take my hand and walk this land with me And walk this lovely land with me Oh, I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God I know I can be strong Two. 